Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Legal sports betting is taking off and a lot of people want in on the action. Many tribes with gaming experience are poised to manage sports books in their state, but it's not a sure bet. Tribes are having to muscle their way into the discussions to make sure they're included. They also have to defend compacts from lengthy legal challenges. We'll hear about the evolving world of sports betting coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The federal government is granting $120 million in aid for tribes to address climate change. KLCC's Brian Bull has more. The Biden administration says it's the largest annual funding through its Tribal Climate Resilience Program. Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs Brian Newland told KLCC applications will be gathered until mid-October with plans to distribute money early next year. As you know, climate change, the longer we wait to start addressing it by moving to renewable sources of energy and reducing our, our use of carbon, the more expensive it's going to be. This $120 million is an initial investment. It's a down payment on the work that we've got to do across Indian country to help protect tribal communities against this growing threat. Newland says tribal communities in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska are dealing with coastal erosion. Other tribes are contending with intensifying wildfires, drought, and flooding. I'm Brian Bull. For years, it was difficult to find meals like bison pot roast or an elk taco at a restaurant. A chef in Denver is bringing the cuisine to menus as KUNC's Emma Vandenindy reports. Chef Andrea Murdoch is busy in the kitchen. She's baking her light blue sugar cookies with the help of some volunteer chefs. They're like blue. Yeah, they stay blue. It's awesome. They do? Yeah. That color is made from Ute Mountain Ute cornmeal from Southwest Colorado. Blue cornmeal is something that's very um, specific to the Four Corners region of the U.S. Like you will not find this easily out on the West Coast, out on the East Coast. And this isn't the first time she's used unique ingredients. I source locally and indigenously to support those economies. Kroger doesn't need my money. It all started when Murdoch expanded Four Directions Cuisine, her food business. She wanted to create South American cuisine. And through her research, she found that ingredients representative of the culture were pre-colonial, like rabbit, bison, or other foods that existed in the Americas before colonizers arrived. I have this distinct privilege and honor to be able to take the teachings from others and translate that through menus. Along with sourcing food from local and indigenous farmers, she forages around her for flowers and grasses, praying to the weather god Iyapa for rain. As she cooks, she taps into what she calls her sixth sense and connects with plants and animals that are seen as relatives in her culture. There's an element of listening to the ingredients and understanding how you're going to honor them best. Indigenous cuisine like Murdoch's has recently grown in popularity, with many restaurants opening in cities like Minneapolis and Seattle. And for the second year in a row, a native chef won a James Beard Award, almost like the Oscars for cooking. But it wasn't always this way, and there's still room to grow. We find food from all over the world in our amazing cities, and very seldom do we find food of where we happen to be standing that represents the land and the indigenous communities and cultures. That's Sean Sherman. 
head chef of Awamni in Minnesota, and a multi-James Beard Award winner. And we should really be focused on what's the true food of North America, and you can't understand North American food unless you bring the indigenous perspective into it. I'm Emma Vandenindy. Tune in tomorrow to hear how chefs are bringing awareness to indigenous issues through cooking. The Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma recently recognized a seven-year-old Chickasaw citizen for bravery for rescuing his three-year-old brother who fell off a cliff and into a creek. Tribal leaders presented Dakota Duke with a plaque at an end-of-school ceremony. The brothers were on a family hiking trip at a tribal recreation area when the incident took place. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Is your tank empty? There's another gas you should be worried about. Carbon monoxide can kill in minutes. But you can stay safe by placing CO alarms in your home. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. There's a struggle right now in Florida over who will control mobile sports betting. State officials secured a compact with the Seminole Tribe that promises a $2.5 billion share of gaming profits over 30 years. Right now, the Seminoles are planning to start their mobile sports operation in a month, but that could change if opponents continue legal challenges. The Florida case is part of the evolving world of sports betting. With billions of dollars at stake, even tribes with decades of gaming experience often face an uphill battle to gain equal footing with competitors. Other tribes find collaborative partnerships to access sports betting technology and capital. Today, we'll take a look at the current landscape for sports betting. Is your tribe looking to start a sports book venture? Do you have worries or concerns over sports betting in your community? Share insights at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post to our social media pages like Facebook and Instagram. Speaking in Mayetta, Kansas is Chris Garrow. He is the director of gaming at Prairie Band Casino and Resort. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. In Grand Forks, North Dakota, we're joined by Catherine Rand. She is a law professor at the University of North Dakota School of Law. Catherine, welcome. Thank you so much. Also in Grand Forks is Stephen Light. He is a professor and co-director with the Institute for the Study of Tribal Gaming Law and Policy, Political Science, and Public Administration at the University of North Dakota. And he is also affiliated with the University of Nevada, Las Vegas School of Law. Steve, appreciate you talking with us today. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here with all the guests. With that, let's go ahead and get this conversation started. And I'd like to begin with Chris. Chris, can you tell our listeners about the process of starting a sports betting operation for the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation? The tribe has faced some setbacks. Yes, we have uh, 
several setbacks, but we're we're getting closer as as we speak. The state of Kansas approved sports betting last year, and our state casinos were allowed to to start for football season last year. And now, you know, we're a season behind them. They've reached out, you know, they've received all this this revenue, and the state really is not getting a, a lot of revenue, especially in February when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. The state only took a thousand dollars in in tax revenue. Um, that's, we'll get into that to talk about the volatility of sports betting, but recently our chairman and tribal council negotiated a compact with the state to allow sports betting, and the tribe voted to for the amendment, and then recently the Department of Interior deemed that uh, that it was okay for us to proceed with the amendment. So we're working really hard behind the scenes to, to bring bricks-and-mortar sports betting to the, our property, but we're still a little ways away from online right now. Okay. And I know the Seminole Nation and one of the legal challenges they're facing is is the location. Um, they, they're arguing, look, our, our servers for these online sports books, they're on tribal land and their opponents are saying, yeah, that's true. But the people that are gambling, they're not on tribal land. And that's created a roadblock for them. And you folks are facing something similar there in Kansas, if I'm not mistaken. Well, we're, we're seeing what you know we're watching what they're doing i i don't want to speak too much to that because i'm not completely informed on it but we're closely watching that that hub and spoke case and whether it would apply to us or not you know they're facing several legal challenges in in florida on that and that uh that appellate court the last day for appeals is i believe it's august 21st but we still have more uh, roadblocks ahead of us for our for us to launch mobile Okay. And Chris, what's the motivation for for tribes like uh, Prairie Band and others to do sports betting? Because last year we had Jason Giles, who's the executive director of the National Indian Gaming Association on the show, and he really stressed that it's not a big moneymaker for a casino sports betting. In fact, it presents a whole new level of risks and challenges going forward. What's your thought on that? So sports gambling is truly gambling there's no rng associated with it so we're going to have volatility with it in the size of the tribe and the location of the casino matters because if you don't have the population you don't have the 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 parlays and anything to offset that volatility and then to expand further you know what are you going to do to offset some of that volatility with whether it's close class two gaming on premise or mobile gaming on premise Class three. There's there's several other uh, opportunities for us to offset offset that volatility. So you really need to you know partner with a good provider. Whether you're going to do a B2C route or a B2B route, and you really need to understand the costs associated behind doing a B2B versus a B2C. And selecting your partner is really important because you have to enter in into a long-term deal with those, and some of those are almost 10-year contracts, and it might be good might look good at first they'll offer a lot of money up front but what's behind the money we all have to see behind the money and and it's a it's a big big dollar amount that some of these operators are gonna are gonna uh present to us and we just really need to be careful and hire a good consultant to help us with these decisions okay 
Sports betting has just blown up in the United States. Anybody who watches professional sports on television, you'll see the commercials, you'll see you know the lines on the games and things like that. It's totally just become, it's entered into everybody's living room now anytime you watch professional sports. But for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with how it works, can you just explain in, in layman's terms, you know, the mechanics of sports betting? Like how does somebody place a bet at a tribal casino or anywhere else on a Super Bowl game or NBA finals or anything like that? For us, you have to train. Uh, we have to train all of our, our team members about what like a parlay means or what a spread means or money line. All of our frontline team members need to be educated. Our our uh, team members that work behind those counters, you know, they're gonna be the the people to talk to. Or if you're if you're uh, a seasoned sports better, you can use a kiosk. If you, if you have an app, you can you know make those wagers on on the app. You know, we saw a lot of bonusing come out last year with with the big you know FanDuel DraftKings BetMGM and uh, those companies are are not putting up the money that or the numbers that that they should be because it's all bonusing and uh we just have to be really careful and make sure we're educating our guests and our team members and there's there's people out there that you could you could partner with to help educate with the odds board and it those odds boards can explain what those what those that terminology means you just used the phrase bonusing can you explain that in more detail so if i'm if i'm one of the big big uh sports betting companies out there i'm going to offer you a thousand dollar deposit bet and you deposit a thousand dollars and you'll get a thousand dollars in free bets essentially so people when we're shopping these bonuses right at the beginning and now we're not seeing all a lot of those bonusing Got it, got it. So they were investing, DraftKings, FanDuel, those folks were putting in a lot of money just drawing in new customers, right? And that was hitting their bottom line spending. Right. Millions of dollars, and that's not taxed. Okay, okay, got it. Well, really interesting conversation today, learning about sports betting and and how it's going to impact uh, tribal communities, tribal casinos, and you know, Chris, you, you hear stories about some of the risks. I remember way back in, in the early 90s when, when Mike Tyson suffered his first big defeat. And I think Buster Douglas was like a, a 42 to 1 underdog. And you heard about some of the, the sports books took a, a big hit there. And I mean, that's something you really have to keep an eye on, right? You just never know how one of these games could play out. And, and you could end up owing a lot of money to, to a lot of gamblers. And to speak to a little bit to that, when the, the Golden Knights their inaugural season, they did really well and they were making it to the finals and those sports books in, in Las Vegas and other places were were trying to buy some of those bets back to offset their risk and and those who held out for the championship lost a lot of money that where they could have made a lot of money by just giving that bet back. So so we have to have our risk uh, a risk analysis to make sure that we're not overexposed. We'll we'll adjust the lines accordingly. When, it, when it's heavy on one side, and that's what our our partners and our providers need to, to do for us. But but entering into a B2B uh, agreement like we're doing, you know, we have to make the the final decision on the lines. Otherwise, that could look at it, look at like a management contract, which we need all need to avoid. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris. I want to bring in our next guest now, Stephen Light. And uh, Steve, let's broaden this conversation beyond Kansas now. And which states are facing the most legal battles over tribal sports betting right now? 
Well, that's a great question. Uh, so for, for our listeners, I think uh, one of the first things to understand is what you said, which is that uh, sports betting legalization has exploded. Um, and one of the key reasons for that, if not the key reason, was a, a 2018 U.S. Supreme Court decision that effectively opened the door for states to, to legalize sports wagering beyond uh, Nevada and New Jersey, where, of course, um, all kinds of gambling was legal prior to that. And so with the door open for states to legalize sports wagering, that opened the door effectively for tribes to, to enter that space as well. Um, and whether that's through um, the negotiation or renegotiation of compacts or uh, through use of existing compact provisions or uh, entering into to new markets in relation to their existing casino operations, uh, their retail in casino operations or adding mobile. So that explosion has just happened in the last five years. And today we have uh, 34 states plus Washington, D.C., where sports wagering is legal. If we think a little bit about um, how hard it is to get anything done in many of our legislative halls these days, whether that's Congress or state legislatures, how hard it is to, to gain consensus and agreement, it's actually remarkable that two-thirds of the states now have sports wagering So, in, in just the last five years. And from there, what that opens the door to is thinking about the tribal markets that might exist within those states. So of the 34 states that have legalized sports wagering today, uh, about 23 or so have the opportunity for tribe, tribes to, to enter the sports wagering space as well. Okay. Steve, we're going to have to take a, a short break, but uh, we'll be right back and we'll talk more uh, about some of these pressing issues with sports betting and tribal gaming. Stay with us, folks. This is Sean Spruce, host of Native America Calling. You can listen in every weekday to hear the only national call-in show from a Native American perspective. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you can join us for the next Native America Calling. OCO. From round dance to the exhibition dance, you always come prepared. Why not do the same with your health? Schedule your wellness visits and never miss a beat. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about tribally run sports betting. Is your tribe getting into the business? Are you seeing benefits? Or do you see echoes of the start of casino gaming? Join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848 to share your comments on the air. I'm also interested in hearing from some sports fans today. What do you think? Is the ability to bet on NFL games, the Final Four, the NBA or WNBA championships at your tribal casino, is that something that interests you? What about betting on professional golf or tennis or MMA fights? Sports fans, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we're talking now with Stephen Light at the University of North Dakota School of Law. And Steve, this 
uh, Seminole Tribe of Florida and this big legal battle that they're engaged in right now. How closely are you watching that, and, and how important is that with regard to tribal sports betting in other states throughout the country? Well, Florida is something that everyone who's paying attention to sports betting, let alone tribal sports betting, uh, is is paying close attention to. So um, I'm sure uh, Chris is, our other guest, <laughs> many tribes across the U.S., and, and I think Catherine will be able to speak to this as well, what's happening in Florida with the Seminole Tribe. That, that state and what's happening with Seminole and the lawsuit there is a real uh, potential bellwether and um, has the opportunity, depending on the outcome of litigation there, to really remake the landscape for mobile sports wagering across the U.S. and open the door for tribes uh, to negotiate over tribe uh, over mobile sports wagering. So we're looking at that closely. Um, and, you know, in relation to the politics across the U.S., uh, other states of, of interest as well include Oklahoma uh, for various reasons there in relationship to negotiations with uh, Governor Stitt there. Uh, California, where there are issues related to sports wagering on the ballot that we've seen and, and the general public's ability to vote on that. Um, so there are a number of really important states where questions related to sports wagering are, are, may get resolved soon or, or may continue to kick the can down the road. And what's at the heart of these legal battles over sports betting? Because it's not just uh, state governments who are challenging tribes. I mean, there are private interests as well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'd say that there are some big categories that, uh, you know, that are causing um, contestation. And it really depends on the state, as we know, with with so many, uh, for example, in, in tribal gaming overall, you're talking about 29 states with uh, 250 or so tribes that are operating over 500 casinos. So we know that there's a real patchwork in terms of thinking about these issues. So it might be um, the, the issues might be driven by uh, the state legislature and political or partisan divides or even ideological divides in the state legislature over gambling at all uh, and the nature of gambling regulation or tax revenues in the state. It might be driven by um, a more conservative-leaning general public and, and its perception uh, of sports wagering and uh, the flood of sports wagering advertising that we've seen from big players like DraftKings and BetMGM and FanDuel and the like. Uh, it might be um, the more specific question of a, of a lawsuit, like the case uh, of Florida, uh, or um, ongoing negotiation over uh, an existing compact and what games uh, could be added to that compact. So those are some of the big categories where we see that kind of contestation. Okay, Steve. And I know some people are saying it's it's bigger than just the issue of sports betting because, look, if, if, it, it comes down to this whole idea of, of mobile gaming. And, and they say, look, if tribes can't have mobile, that means eventually they won't be able to have online casinos. And, and that's where the industry is going, right? They're moving more and more to these online gaming platforms. And if that's the case, then that's it. That's the end of, of tribal gaming at, at some point in the future because it's not just about the sports betting. It's also being able to offer blackjack and roulette and all these things in a mobile version as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there's some big picture questions um, that a lot of tribes are grappling with, uh, including our other guests and representing that tribe. Um, so 
the, the question of what the gaming industry is going to look like uh, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, lots of tribes are thinking about that. We have the pandemic and, and uh, example of the unknowns uh, that come into play. But overall, as you look at tribal gaming revenue and its near continual growth, so the National Indian Gaming Commission just announced recently record um, revenue of nearly $41 billion for tribal gaming overall, a huge success story for many tribes, including job creation and revenue uh, stream to fund infrastructure and the like. But a lot of tribal casinos are built around the bricks and mortar operation. And as you noted, Sean, um, in terms of thinking about uh, younger patrons and and actually just about anyone um, these days, people have cell phones. They know how to use them. They know how mm -hmm. to buy things. They know right. how, uh, the importance of entertainment. And they also want frictionless experiences with whatever they're doing. And so that includes gambling. Uh, and then also younger patrons are, are less interested in the more conventional kinds of casino-style games, unless possibly those games can be offered um, via mobile app. So there's no doubt that that's where things are heading. Uh, a key question for tribes is how to leverage their existing brands and their existing operations and their existing, existing patron base while expanding that. And that's what sports betting can do uh, overall for a lot of tribes. Okay. And, and there's also at stake is this issue of just where tribal gaming is in terms of its evolution. And you just mentioned uh, record profits last year, I believe, of $41 billion. And I read a New York Times article uh, earlier this year, and they estimated the tribal gaming industry at about $39 billion. And so that ranged at $39 billion, $40 billion, $41 billion. I mean, I've heard that $40 billion figure for like the last 15 years. Uh, so I, I really wonder, like, looking ahead, uh, it seems like the glory days and those high-growth periods of tribal gaming, uh, those years are behind us, aren't they, Stephen? Well, um, I'd say we're seeing continual, steady, year-over-year -year growth, and the blip there is the pandemic. So, so you're right that we might be seeing a new era where I think uh, sports wagering is going to drive a lot of that new growth. But if you look at the rebound from the pandemic with a year-over-year -year growth of, of 20% or more for tribal gaming and that paralleled in the commercial space, um, there's still a lot of room for growth, and there's, there's room for growth in, in specific states. So it's not going to apply to all tribes equally. Tribal gaming never does. Um, <laughs> and mm -hmm. so if you think about a state like California with 40 million people um, and, the potent, you know, and the existing casino operations there, what if that state were to legalize sports wagering? Uh, what would that do in terms of revenue? If you think about uh, the opportunity to negotiate and, and have a, a landing in Oklahoma uh, where all parties agree to that and amend the compacts and add mobile sports wagering, there's still a lot of room for growth and, and a room, room to tap into um, especially young players and their interests in, in the sports market overall. Okay. And how does, how does sports betting do that for tribal gaming, though? Because we've already 
you know, it's been clear that it doesn't bring in the kind of numbers, the revenue that that slot machines do. Is it just about getting people in the door and, and hanging out and having dinner and, and playing slots and, oh, yeah, let's bet in a game while we're here, too? Is that the idea? Because just in itself, sports betting is not going to bring in those huge numbers that revenue numbers that I think a lot of people maybe think it does. Yeah, it's a good point, Sean, and, and one that Chris made as well. Um, and so there's different ways to think about the opportunities for tribes and, and driving uh, revenue. Number one, um, it might not just be about the dollar itself. It might be about, um, you know, uh, shoring up existing casino operations, job creation, um, retention of, of players, uh, player loyalty, that kind of thing. It might be about food and beverage so it might be about getting folks in the door, as you said, um, and and they're going to spend more on your, you know, on your property, especially if it's not a big destination casino resort. It might be more about just getting folks in the door and and getting them to to spend uh, throughout the casino or on the golf course. Uh, for some of the bigger the bigger tribes um, that are that have what we might call more successful uh, casino operations based largely on their location in a place like California, for example, it really might be about um, sports betting's opportunity to drive really significant growth based on the sheer bet handle and, and bet volume. Um, so it does depend on the tribe and the type of casino operation. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Let's go ahead and bring Catherine into our conversation now. She's also a law professor at the University of North Dakota. And Catherine, what trends are you seeing with tribal sports betting right now that we haven't already tapped into on the show today? So the big one uh, is, as you've been talking about, whether or not tribes are going to be able to offer mobile and perhaps statewide mobile under the terms of a compact rather than a state license. So that's one big thing uh, coming out of, of Florida. But we're also seeing, as, as Steve indicated, that there's more of an appetite for sports betting than there may be for other kinds of casino gaming. So Americans seem to really want to bet on sports, even if they might not be interested in other casino games. So as you've been talking about, that's one of the, the trends that we're seeing for tribal casinos, too thinking about the long-term uh, picture for their gaming operation. So for tribes in particular, they want a successful gaming operation to last for decades into the future. How are they going to leverage that kind of success? How is sports betting, and perhaps particularly, how is mobile sports betting part of that big picture? Okay. And if we go back to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that, that started gaming way back in the 80s and, and gave tribes the green light to pursue this, this whole idea of mobile gaming and, and online apps and things like that, that wasn't addressed, right? There was, that didn't exist at that time. That's exactly right. They didn't even know what cell phones were in Congress back then. <laughs> okay. So now they're kind of having to, like, backtrack and, and kind of figure out how to evolve and how to to adapt this new technology to these older laws. And, and you mentioned, you know, the, the compact versus state license. So 
Yeah, I mean, as, as tribal casinos, that ability to enter into a compact with a state as opposed to like a private uh, for-profit casino enterprise that goes for a state license. I mean, that's a very different process. It's a very different legal structure between what a tribe offers as a casino owner as opposed to like what these folks are doing in Las Vegas, right, and how they're set up. Right. And so with sports betting in particular, I think that we're seeing more of an overlap between that tribal sector and the commercial sector. So some of that has been forced by the states. Uh, and, and so this is another trend that we might identify. So, for example, in Arizona, if a tribe wants to operate a retail sports book on its uh, Indian lands, it can do so under the amended compacts. But if that tribe is interested in operating mobile outside of its reservation, it has to seek a state license. That's different than the kind of arrangement that the Seminoles are hoping to have uh, approved uh, in the federal courts with the state of Florida. So we do see some tribes willingly entering into uh, state licensure, waiving their sovereignty in order to operate uh, gaming outside of Indian lands uh, under a state commercial license. But that, that varies from tribe to tribe. Um, some tribes aren't willing to do that. For other tribes, it's a good business decision. Well, what are, are some models that seem to be working right now with regard to, to tribal gaming and sports betting? Catherine, can you give us any examples? Sure. And I think this really depends on the state jurisdiction, what the state has legalized, and the relationship that the state and the tribe has. So we, we see basically three different approaches that uh, tribes and states are taking with regard to tribal sports wagering. The first one is legalization under what Steve and I call the compact model, which means that the state legalizes sports wagering and tribes conduct it on their Indian lands under their, their compacts. The okay. other option as we talked about, is the commercial model, where uh, a tribe might, for example, purchase a casino in Las Vegas and operate the casino under a Nevada gaming license. And then we're seeing an increasing number of states adopt what Steve and I call a combined model, where the state both allows the tribes to operate uh, sports betting under their compacts on the Indian lands, but creates opportunities for tribes to conduct, conduct sports wagering outside of Indian lands under state law and state regulation. Okay. Catherine, thank you. That, I mean, that, that really, really helps, I, I think, all of us just get a better handle on, on these issues and these different approaches. to. Because I think so many of us just think of, oh, the compacts, right? That, that model one, that first approach that, uh, that you and, and Stephen have outlined. So really, really helpful. Really good conversation today, folks. Please give us a call if you'd like to chime in. 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. If you're a sports fan, give us a call. Or maybe you're not into gaming and you don't see a need for bigger gaming presence in your tribal community. Let us know that too. 1-800-99-NATIVE. And with that, let's take a caller now. We have Randall Crow, and uh, he's actually the co-owner of a, of a business called Native Sports Book Solutions, and he's uh, Eastern Band of Cherokee. Hello, Randall. 
Hey, how are you doing? Uh, uh, excuse me if you hear kids in the background. I'm trying to find a place where I can, <laughs> No worries. Uh, um, I, uh, I hope, Tom, if you're listening, I, I called in to, to listen and somehow ended up calling into the show. So I, I didn't mean to step on your toes. But, uh, oh, no, that's what we we'll want. Get, that's what I, that yeah, makes me feel good. We are inspired to call. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'll just go ahead and jump into it. What was the question again, sir? Well, I just want to hear your your thoughts on, on the landscape of tribal sports betting. I mean, you're in the business. You've got a you've got a, a sports book business going on there. Well, I I mean, mine isn't. I mean, I think it's a good thing for tribes. I feel like it's undervalued by a lot of tribes. They don't see the utility in it. And what I try to tell people is, it's not just about sports betting. It's about the next step down the road. And I see sports betting as uh, a stepping stone to iGaming for a lot of jurisdictions and uh a lot of these tribes uh when they go in with these market access deals give up all their data and their market share to these big players they think they're getting a great deal with five percent of the revenue but then they uh let's say that iGaming goes live and they no okay. longer uh need right. a reservation right. randall randall do me a favor hold that thought i, I want to let you continue but we do have to take a short break so please really want to hear more about iGaming and some of these perspectives that you can offer so we are going to take a short break but anybody else listening with a caller uh, anybody has a question or a comment 1-800-99-NATIVE give us a call we got our phone lines open still do you want to start manage or grow your small business the u.s small business administration can help SBA wants to see you win. They want to see you grow. They have been so helpful and so resourceful. Thanks to the SBA, my business is thriving today. Make sure you get in touch with SBA and you will definitely be on your way to a winning path. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. You're listening to Native America Calling, and there's still time to join this conversation about sports betting. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to contribute, join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we've got another caller on the line, uh, Tom, and he's a co-founder of Native Sportsbook Solutions. So he is a partner with our, our previous caller there, Um who Randall, who we were just talking with before break, and I want to bring Tom into the conversation. And Tom, uh, Randall mentioned iGaming. Can you tell us a little bit more? What do you mean by iGaming? Yeah, hi, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's a great forum and a great show and a great topic, so it's, it's something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, so, I mean, if you really take a look at the way legislation is trending throughout the market, what you find is that, and, and you know, industry experts will agree that sports betting is, sort of the gateway into full iGaming, which is mobile and online casino. And I think what Randall was really alluding to is that it's, it's imperative for tribal operators to, and I hate to say imperative because it, it kind of forces a hand, right? But at the end of the day, it's all about survival because unlike commercial casinos, you know, tribal operators support the Native American communities that, that the tribal operation is connected with. And so, you know, it's imperative, we feel, Native Sportsbook Solutions, uh, it's imperative for tribes to really implement and deploy sports betting so that they can begin to understand the customer, the dynamics of, um, of the new sports better, 
um, to Catherine's point, you know, there's a lot of Americans that, that enjoy uh, wagering on sports. It's a completely new demographic. It is the future demographic of what these operators can expect within their casino. Um, but more importantly, if you take a look at the technological uh, enhancements to legislation and where we're going, I think, I, I say as a country, but as a country, really state by state as a country within the next seven to, let's say, 12 to 13 years, Okay. A lot of these states that have uh, legalized sports betting will legalize mobile and online casino. And at that point, you'll have commercial operators, um, and in some states, FanDuel and DraftKings are already doing it, where you'll have the sports betting side to your mobile app, and then you have your online casino app. And if you're doing something like that in Wisconsin and Minnesota and California, now you have these commercial operators taking that almost traditional, even though it's in a, in a mobile iGaming format, traditional revenue stream of casino away from these tribal operators. So, you know, sports betting for us as a company, and when we, when we talk to tribal operators, we talk about a 15-year lens, right, 20-year lens. What does this look like? How is this going to develop? How is this going to mature and taper in? Um, it's important to really take sports betting seriously because it is the gateway, the introduction to uh, being able to be competitive within the marketplace once full eye gaming opens up. Okay. All right. Technological Tom. platforms. Uh, Got open it. Up. Got it. Tom, thank you for, for calling you both you and Randall uh, for adding to our discussion. They really appreciate it. I, I want to go back to, to guest Catherine Rand now and, and Catherine hearing uh, these callers talk about eye gaming in, in, in the future. And I mean, is, is it possible that we're just seeing another example here of technology disrupting an industry and we've seen it before right there are always winners and losers dating back to you know when the automobile took all the the buggy whip manufacturers out of business and um where do where where do tribes fall in this in this mix here because it's it's a whole new realm of gaming and and obviously most tribes don't have the expertise at this point or, or the technology to do this type of gaming so what does the future hold so, Sean, you put your finger on this just a moment ago when you talked about the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act as really lacking, understandably so, but lacking the foresight to see the future of mobile wagering. So that act hasn't been amended. Tribes uh, are, are still operating under uh, a federal law that presumes a bricks-and-mortar casino. You talked about uh, industry disruption, but in this way, we might be thinking about just more cleanly the preferences of younger and new customers. So if tribes are bound by that bricks and mortar idea under IGRA and aren't able to expand, then their casinos may not serve the role, the public policy role, as an economic driver and job creator for tribes for years to come, which is what we all should want. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what uh, Tom and Randall were talking about is thinking about how to leverage sports betting as a way of investing in the future of tribal gaming operations. But it's a different answer for each tribe. Um, the risks, as we've talked about, are more significant with, with sports betting. And growing that expertise may take time and cost money, and not all tribes will have those resources. Okay. And going back to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, this, this outdated piece of legislation, uh, any efforts or interest in, in looking to amend the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act to make uh, 
clarify uh, opportunities and opportunities and processes for tribes to, to do online gaming? Well, you know, interestingly, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for that. Um, and the biggest reason for that is that when we talk about amending the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, often there's political pressure to amend it in ways that would constrain Indian gaming, that would constrain what tribes are able to do, rather than expand what tribes are able to do to keep pace with the industry. So I think that uh, tribes legitimately are concerned that opening up IGRA to amendment would cause some issues. That's one of the reasons why the uh, litigation out of Florida is so important. Instead of thinking about IGRA as outdated, could we interpret it and apply it in a way that allows it to keep pace with innovation? Got it. Thank you, Catherine, for that clarification. Really, really helpful. We've got a, another caller, another guest, actually, who we're going to bring into the show now, who is joining us from Washington, D.C., Senator Sally Ann Gonzalez. She is an Arizona state senator who represents District 20, and she is Pasquayaki. Senator Gonzalez, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're having a really good conversation here about tribal gaming and sports betting. And tell us, what is the landscape right now in Arizona? Do tribes have equal footing with sports betting? Uh, absolutely not. And I really want to thank your um, Catherine, I believe, um, that just spoke, your guest that just spoke. She she really has a, a good handle on on IGRA and how it, it is affecting sports betting around the country for Indian tribes. And let me just tell you that in, 19, uh, in 2021, when Arizona pay, uh, uh, passed the sports betting um, law, um, it, it was, you know, like you said, we have losers and winners. And in my opinion, it was the tribes that are the big losers um, and because they lost their exclusivity that tribes had in, in Indian gaming, in gaming in Arizona, that the people of Arizona had given them in 2003 about. And um, so they lost that. And, and um, the, the winners are the, the professional, the, the, well, who, who I call Doug Ducey, the former governor's tribe, and they are all of the professional um, uh, uh, teams in Arizona, the Diamondbacks, the Cardinals, the Suns, PGA, NASCAR, and the Coyotes. And, and also the big winners were also all of those app, um, app uh, uh, betting app um, people, fan duels, the DraftKings of the world are all of the ones who were are the big winners in Arizona. Um, I just would like your your listeners to know that in Arizona, the the whole process of how um, sports betting came about and that legislation was all um, backwards. It was um, really secretive, um, and it was um, a very hush hush and rushed through the legislature um, with no public input almost whatsoever. And, 
and the tribes had little say about that legislation except for what the governor um, Doug Ducey was negotiating with them on on this amended um, um, uh, it was an amendment to their to their um, uh, already um, what are the, what are the in, uh, compacts that they have okay. with the state okay. and so and so that's the um, anyway uh, do um, let's see what else okay. do I want to say do you have well, a question. I, I do, Senator, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the professional teams because they are also stakeholders here. They have a, a vested interest in in, in the in the, the sports betting industry as well. So appreciate you mentioning that. Now, um, so you, you gave us some good history there. Those compacts that date back, or that Arizona compact that dates back to 2003, and I, I believe it was originally limited uh, 22 tribes to, to gambling in the state of Arizona. And as I understand it, I, you have some new legislation that, that you're either introducing or you'd like to introduce uh, that could change how tribes access sports betting can you talk about that sure um well since then said i have um in, uh, introduced legislation that would give all tribes um a a sports um license because um when i say that it was um inequitable in arizona there was only 10 tribal licenses that were issued and we have 22 tribes that 22 tribes had to compete for the 10 tribal licenses. Mm -hmm. And yet the professional gaming uh, people got 10 licenses and we don't even have 10 professional teams in Arizona. So they did not have to compete. They outright just got it. And so that's one of the um, inequitabilities that happen in Arizona. Um, um, now, um, can you tell me the question again? Well, no, I some of this legislation that you're interested in in moving forward so it can streamline the sports betting process for for tribes in Arizona can you talk about that um for sure like i said i would like all the tribes to be able to have a sports license and for it, and for that license to be equal to what the sports gaming um uh people franchises got because currently the 10 licenses that the tribes got um, only can only be used on reservation in, in their casinos. And, okay. and, the, and the ones that the professional people got um, is a little bit more expansion, not only in their facilities, in their uh, um, coliseums or wherever they play, but five mile or five, an area of... Um, five blocks around that so they could build different uh, different buildings to where people can have be betting on their uh, on their um, license and okay. so they're just not equal okay well thank you senator and so i'm also interested i mean is this creating some conflict there between the tribes in arizona and some of these sports teams because i know in the past there have been some really strong partnerships between arizona tribes and their professional sports franchises you go to those games i've been to cardinals games there's there's a tribal presence in the advertising uh the coyotes as well is that creating some conflicts well i i you would have to um ask the tribes uh, on, on that that question, I am not familiar with those, but but I wouldn't if I was a tribe, I wouldn't be spending my monies at those facilities because they're taking revenue away from 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 the needs of their our communities. For example, um, you know um, the the revenue 
that the sports teams and franchises they go into the, you know the owners' pockets and 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 just creating more business while while the licenses that the tribes has they still have to have um, follow IGRA like your former speaker said and 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 the and IGRA says that it's dictated to using those gaming revenues for the needs of our community like housing healthcare education and 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 those are all good things except that's another area where these licenses are not equitable okay senator we're going to wind down the show here in the next couple of minutes but can you give us some specifics how how does sports betting benefit tribes there in arizona well um i'm not sure how well they are faring um with um with their sports books that they that the few have been able to um to to have or to to garner um uh, i'm not sure how they're faring i i just know that that the sports uh, franchises are making a ton of money and the state is making a little bit of money on that that goes through to the general fund um you know but um but the tribal money that the state money the 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 tribal revenue revenue that the state makes it it's dedicated to education to trauma centers and to um the state parks where the other ones just go to the into the pockets of these owners so it's unequal unequitable and i i sure hope that we in the near future there is um uh, legislation or my legislation can get hearings and 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 get passed to make it a more equitable process and and for for the tribes. Senator, thank you for for joining us today, coming into our conversation and, and providing uh, some details about uh, the sports betting tribal sports betting landscape there in the state of Arizona. And we're going to have to wrap up the show here, but I, I really encourage anybody listening if you didn't get a chance to call in today. Follow up with us on social media. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, or you can post a comment on our, our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. We always encourage people to continue the dialogue even after the show goes off the air, which is what we're going to have to do right now. Before I do that, I do want to thank our guest today, Chris Giro, Catherine Rand, Stephen Light, and Senator Sally Ann Gonzalez for what's been a really fast-moving conversation on the future of sports betting and tribal gaming. Join us tomorrow as we do another installment of The Menu, hosted by Andy Murphy, our regular feature about Native food news. Hope you enjoy it. We'll talk again soon. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a Native-led foundation supporting Native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. 
My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.